Hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller and my guest today is... David Rowe. David, it's wonderful to see you. I think I introduced myself to you 37 years ago at a sociology conference in Sydney because I was a fan of your work. I'm still a fan of your work. And so it's great to be with you, albeit virtually today. Tell us, if you would, your starter for 10, what, uh, if anything, and I'm sure there are many things, is occupying you, preoccupying you, disrupting you, troubling you, dynamizing you, interesting you these days? Yeah, well, I've now, I've now reached um, the ben, uh, venerable age, so I'm an emeritus professor, uh, which means that um, I can do the... Uh, the bits of uh, being an academic that that I like and and and, and swerve away from the the things that drove me mad at the end of my academic life, uh, paid academic life. So I I can I kind of go where things take me at the moment, which is which is great. I'm not chasing grants. I don't you know I don't need to go um, you know endlessly looking for peer reviewed publications that kind of thing. So I do um, quite a lot of what I've always done um, in terms of my, you know, my main interests, uh, and and I do them in a range of fora. So I do. Uh, I've always done, or for many years now, a lot of of, of uh, journalism or media work, talking head or op eds. Uh, but in 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 substantive terms, uh, I suppose it's the usual. Uh, areas that I'm interested in. I'm a sociologist of, of culture, broadly defined. My PhD a million years ago was on the post-punk um, popular music industry, the independent um, industry in Britain. Uh, I kind of stumbled into sport, uh, tabloid journalism, uh, tourism, the nighttime economy. I do work on cultural infrastructure, I do Borgiasian kind of work on cultural fields and the intersection between them. So uh, pretty much uh, um, I go wherever, you know, I'm in that lucky position now, I go wherever my interest takes. Yes, unfortunately, I guess I've always done that. <laughs> so... <laughs> this may account well, that, for... That's quite interesting because I, um, I, I also there's also a way of doing that of um, of creating coherence in a research program. Uh, like I, I have run a couple of research centres, and quite a lot of the way we frame the program was to look in the rearview mirror to see what we've done. So yes. sort of you know the classic way, which is you have to say, you know, this is where we're going. This is our direction. Um, the way we kind of ran things quite successfully really was to see what we done and were doing and then give a spurious coherence to it. Yeah. That, that, that worked rather well for quite a few years. I think that's very inspired. And of course one of the, the things that's changed in terms of the circumstances that you would have been confronting as a British emigre to Australia and a Plymouth supporter was not only disappointment on the footballing front most of the time, but not all the time, but also a ratcheting up of the requirement to produce coherent narratives about yourself because the block grant system that applied when you were first an academic in Australia has been displaced by a, a neoliberal model of competing for grants and being able to write in the, the appropriate way for such things has become a precondition for many people. No? I mean, you would have seen that especially, I imagine, in the last 20 years, perhaps? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I've seen it in the way people have to kind of fashion themselves in a, in a very specific way, as if they're, you know, an, an academic form of Tinder or something like that, you know, providing <laughs> their best... Their best, their best profile and that kind of thing, and 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 fashioning their research careers in a particular way, you know, um, and you know, making all kinds of absurd claims about impact, 
like not just like some impact or over the time, but a kind of instantaneous and uh, and 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 all-consuming impact. One of one of the reasons I, I mean I did actually um, leave the paid workforce um, a bit earlier than those, um, partly because I built up you know, as one does in Australia you know, quite a good superannuation. So I, in a sense. Um, you know, I was in the fortunate position of being well off, you know, reasonably well off, in global terms, extremely well. But also, I had been involved in three uh, events uh, in the research world in Australia, uh, in which there had been uh, political intervention in in the awarding of research grants, all by conservative governments. Never, I was never the direct victim of any of them. I was either a, a reviewer of a grant which I approved, and, uh, and I, I was told that you know, it had been approved and then wasn't. Um, I was a, a, a mentor of, of staff and was in on two occasions uh, to see uh, both of them struck out secretly, in fact, for um, for political reasons, for uh, essentially throwing red meat to the right and the tabloid press, that the, you know, this were, that these were typical examples of useless research um, of a left-wing nature, uh, and uh, public funds shouldn't, shouldn't go in, you know, into this area. And that you know that really uh, got my goat, and uh, I'm pleased to see that most of the people who made those little event interventions have got their comeuppance one way or another. Uh, but it took a lot to of time to find out exactly what had happened, and now uh, there is. I'm not that happy with it in, in its entirety, but there's a new Labour government in, and it, it while it won't give up. The ultimate power of veto. It is uh, being much clearer about it and also giving proper reasons, not this is just a waste of public money. You know, they throw in occasional things. You know, I think probably Furphy is like, uh, oh, this research may be, uh, may involve a, a hostile foreign power or something like that. Um, you know, that I, I think that's rather unlikely in most cases. Um, but so I, I do think that is one one area uh, which has really troubled me, and and I've been quite outspoken about it, and I've made representations about it, and I'm hoping that uh, things will get a bit better here in Australia as a result. And that's about external intervention. What about internal? Uh, I'm thinking here of a tendency that. I've noted in my unfortunate encounters in British academia, but it's been happening since I left the US as well, namely the increased power and number of incompetent people with no or minimal research and teaching experience within universities. They're more powerful, they intervene more, they achieve less, and they suck up more and more resources. Is that something that you've perceived in Australia also? Oh, yeah, certainly. And uh, I mean, I was uh, for for decades, um, you know, an active academic unionist, and I was president of you know, the branch for one of my universities. And in fact, I established one. Um, one a branch of a of, of, of an actual academic union, as opposed to one that was a wing of of uh, secondary school uh, school uh, institutions. And uh, so I've been, uh, yeah, a long term uh, critic um, in internal within university politics. Somewhat less in in recent in recent years. Uh, so obviously, I've left the paper at course now, but. Also, I, I had the good fortune of, uh, you know, when I when I moved to Western Sydney University and I, and I remember hosting you there uh, happily once. There's a very nice picture of you outside the female orphan school. 
taken by a university photographer. Um, but I, I was lucky enough to be in a, a research institute with a wide brief. We, uh, we were the Centre for Cultural Research under me, and then we became the Institute for Culture and Society. So we didn't feel, uh, in, in some ways, I think we were privileged, we didn't quite feel the hot breath of, uh, of management you know, steering the research agenda in quite that way. I had, I had felt it uh, and, um, and had you know, grave reservations about people without any background in the university sector, people were given the title of professor, um, you know, who never published or done research, uh, of any kind, um, never gone for peer review, uh, you know, research grants, that kind of thing, um, telling us uh, essentially what to do and getting paid much more than um, than we were uh, for doing it. So that that has been an issue. But the uh, the whole, uh, I mean, you're familiar with the whole idea of sludge work and that kind of thing. You know, the, the kind of bureau in the name of accountability, the bureaucratic. Um, pressures and uh you know like you know just trying to do something like procurement the, the procurement process uh which is essentially spending university money pretty much anything um and god help you if you try to travel on, on research or in scholarly business and then you enter a kind of kafka-esque nightmare um so yeah, the, I, mean, I don't want to be too too gloomy about things because uh, you know, I, I do try to be optimistic. I'm very um, uh, made very happy by the quality of the people coming coming behind me and their determination. But I feel that many people have been have been browbeaten. Many academics have uh, they have kind of preemptively. Um, buckled uh, to managerial pressure in many cases. And David, you mentioned earlier that some of your work on cultural infrastructure is influenced by Bourdieu and his mm -hmm. school of work. I wonder if you could reflect for a moment for us a bit on your theoretical trajectory, as it were. Because when I encountered your work, I first encountered your work on sports and then shortly thereafter on music, you were being a red-hot Marxist doing political economy and ethnography of those domains. And in particular, within sociology, seeking to draw attention to the failure to pay sufficient heed to the popular uh, in many ways, I'm not sure things have changed. You're still a red-hot Marxist doing political economy and ethnography, but maybe you found other ways of dressing it up or other methodological points of entry, or maybe I'm wrong. Uh, yeah, I mean, I always, um, I always found this uh, a, a bit of, um, and I think you, you, you might find this too coming through, uh, cultural studies is an interesting field. Um, there are you know, a, a series of tensions around the formation of that field and, it, and its trajectory. And you, you'll recall, I'm sure, when, when political economy was some, you know, two dirty words in, in cultural studies, one was regarded as uh, you know, an unreconstructed determinist functionist Marxist, Marxist you know, a left functionist or whatever it would be. Um, and there was this other uh, area that, uh, an ethos really, which, which had superseded this old, this old stuff, which was much more about um, the you know, readers of text and users of text being all, you know, all powerful, um, policy meaning and, um, and possibilities for resistance across a range of areas, quite apart from social class, the traditional Marxist reference point, and so on. And I, I kind of found myself sometimes playing across both of those. Like I, I never wanted, and I know that you felt this way about your own work. I never wanted to be, as you, you, you said, a vulgar Marxist. Uh, I remember you using that. 
term of that yourself if it was something you wanted you know yourself to avoid um you wanted to be a sophisticated you know marxist and uh, and uh, and I, I i never lost that that marxist um uh, influence on my work and 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 it, but it particularly hit at the moment i suppose i left i left i went to the university of nottingham i did a classical sociological i had sociological training you know i read more talk up parsons and american functionism you know than i could possibly stomach but at least i knew it in a way it was quite useful to know the enemy and then i um, and we had nothing at that time about the center for cultural uh, contemporary cultural studies in Berlin, and uh, you know we weren't told where I was. I kind of I kind of fell across it, and uh, you know I moved around um, universities. So I I had this classic uh, um, sociological degree. I did okay. Um, I then went. Uh, I did a master's in sociology. Uh, you know, in those days, you kind of went into a pool. You know, if you got a scholarship, you could go somewhere. And I went um, to uh, to the University of York, and um, where um, you know happily, I suppose, I encountered uh, Laurie Taylor, probably known well to you know, many of your you know, your listeners, and actually um, has been on the podcast. Yes, indeed, uh, and, and known uh, known to generations of listeners to the BBC before he became a BBC mm-hmm. personality as Laurie Taylor, comma sociologist. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. And I mean, Laurie was, um, you know, I, I guess I was a bit in, in awe of him. Um, and in the end, he helped me out um, in, with um, at the end of my, my master's thesis. He, um, you know, because I, he, he, he did take a bit of a role. But I remember looking at his life and thinking, this is it. Um, so uh, York is... Uh, I'm sure you've been there. It's a it's a it's a, a lovely town in the north of England. Uh, it's got you know it's got surviving walls and all that. Laurie, I think, was living in the King's Manor, this sort of ancient place, had an apartment, and he'd be he'd be a professor of sociology. And then at the weekends, he'd get the train down to London, and he had a flat in the Barbican, and. Um, and he would do Stop the Week, I think it was, from the, um, from, from the from BBC Radio 4. You know, a, a kind of wild end-of-the-week programme. Laurie, very funny, you know, very funny, smart guy, ex-actor and all that. Um, and I thought, wow, that, that life looks okay to me. <laughs> and I was particularly impressed, I think, by his, and it always st- stayed with me, his capacity to go outside academia. And admittedly, you know, this is upmarket public service broadcaster, but it was, you know, it was beyond the university. And I found found myself thinking this was important. I uh, I came, as you know, I come from uh, the west, far southwest of England. We can talk about Plymouth Argyle um, later if you want want to. I came out of a working class family, first in family university, and all that. And I was one of those people had a bit of working class guilt that I felt that I didn't want to be just the beneficiary of public largesse. Um, you know, that that all my all my studies because um, because my my uh, family income, all my studies were um, were supported by uh, public funds, and I always wanted to go. Um, Outside the university, and I, one of the things I said to a friend of mine, she remembers, I said, you know, the first time that either of my parents ever crossed the boundaries of a university was for my first graduation. They never seen a university. I didn't know what it was like. Uh, had no idea what I was doing, but lovely parents that they were supported me. You know, they trusted me, and it, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll always be thankful for them for that. And um, so that's why I've spent. Quite a lot of my academic career being a, what my colleagues have kind of called uh, uh, me in some ways, being a media tart, you know, that expression. You know, that one, one is kind of desperate for attention and therefore goes out in uh, beyond the groves of academia uh, and uh, 
it engages in some gross uh, simplification of some complex theory or body of knowledge. But that's that's what I've I've always felt was important as in, in a way. And I I do lots of media from from you know high end stuff, you know BBC, New York Times, CNN, whatever, down to community radio, um, and uh, you know small student newspapers or radical newspapers, or, you know, uh, you know across the media from from online. Uh, additional print broadcasting. That's always been, I think, an important aspect of what I'm doing. Mm. And and those issues of class background and political commitment connect to this notion of participating beyond one's own career, in a sense. Because at one level, that sort of public intellectual intellection gains credit within academia and within government, but at another level, it gains discredit. Uh, as you say, you can be regarded as simp oversimplifying, playing to an audience and not focusing on, in inverted commas, real research. At the same time as you can be told that your work on medieval art needs to be having a public impact. And uh, this is the way in which public intellection has been both valorized and criticized from different wings of the academy and the state. And it's a difficult game, but you're not playing a game. You're doing it out of a, another kind of commitment. You mentioned coming from a southwest of England. One of the things that annoys me intensely about English notions of diversity in culture is that they are largely about cities and they're largely about former colonial subjects. They're not about being a minority linguistically or racially. If they were, they would be vast resources over the last 20 years dedicated to Polish migrant labor in Britain, to French people, to Brazilians, to Colombians, to other folks of varying linguistic and racial identity that are completely ignored by the notion of why publishing in Britain should be more inclusive, why the media should be. And similarly, similarly, places like the Southwest are not in the picture of where the government forces the BBC, for example, to go. It can go to Wales because Wales is a different country. It can go to Salford because the North is somehow or other constantly regarded as brutally excluded. But forget about hearing a real cider voice <laughs> as a presenter. True or not? Yeah, I, there's an element of that. I mean, I've never, apart from maybe school teachers and, 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 and the doctor, I've never really met middle class people until I went went to university. And I had um, a West Country accent at that time, a kind of, you know, straight, I don't want to exaggerate it, but it, it, it did, you can sometimes hear it when I maybe have had a bit of that cider that you're talking about. <laughs> um, but people would say to me, you know, say that again, that's so cute, you know. And, I, mm. and uh, when I went to university and I, I realised that I wasn't going to be taken seriously if if I sounded like a country yokel, which yeah. was uh, the way that um, people interpreted. Me. In fact, I, I I I was I grew up in in a reasonably large city. Plymouth uh, is uh, about a quarter of a million people. Um, I I spent my first few years, couple of years in my my grandparents' place in a house that was condemned as a slum uh, subsequently. Uh, and then we moved to uh, in a kind of respectable working class area, a little way um, out of the centre, um, walking distance, uh, uh, terraced houses and, and, and all that. And, um, and it was, I mean, sociology was really useful for me. Uh, doing it at, uh, at university uh, to uh, to be able to I mean we all do this I suppose make make sense of our of our upbringing and 
in my case, I say that there was a class dimension. I don't want to exaggerate it. Um, you know, I, I, we were comfortable middle, um, uh, comfortable upper working class family. Uh, we had um, my mother was half Maltese, so we had that. And because uh, because Plymouth is uh, a very was then still is very white place, we kind of stood for the other for many people. Uh, my sisters and I um, had dark hair, dark skin. Uh, we people would come up to us and ask us if we were Indians when we were children, that kind of thing. Uh, we grew up Catholic, um, and uh, that part of the world uh, is quite quite uh, historically anti-Catholic, anti-Papist. Uh, and as you say, it, it tends to uh, to be ignored by um, by many people, uh, many major institutions, uh, as as, not, as kind of neither fish nor fowl in, in some way, um, kind of not 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 real, not urban enough, um, in some ways, uh, and. You know, halfway to Ireland or whatever. Oh, by the way, I had a big chunk of Irish in the family too. Uh, so, and a little bit of Italian. So, like a like a big like a strange mix of not strange, but for for that part of of Britain, quite yeah. quite unusual. So, you, a, a bit about outsider status, which was reconfirmed when I arrived at university, and. Here's another version of your later career. There was an efflux of people for whom sociology could not provide a future in Thatcher's Britain to places like Australia. Uh, were you? Would you regard yourself in that light? Yeah, and and I would, and and it, it it was quite yeah, it's quite quite literal. I mean, it, Literally, because I would, I mean, there were a number of reasons why I went to Australia, including, you know, matter of the heart, maybe principally. But it, uh, at that time, when I was a postgraduate student, the Thatcher government was actively targeting, certainly you might recall, Soviet studies, right? And, and anyone who studied Eastern Europe and sociology in general. And I thought this is going to be really hard. To uh, you know, to to make it here, like it's, I I already didn't. I had no idea what a what a, a career would be because all I knew was I you know I went to university, but I didn't have anybody that I knew that had gone on to do other you know, other things. Certainly not in as academics. I mean, obviously, obviously, I'm the first academic in my family too. But I um, I have to mention this. Uh, to you because of, um, I went to uh, an event. I think it, we were launching a research report that we that we did on gen, on the result. Essentially, a lot of it was about gentrification and the difficulty of of making culture in the in the city. And I got a train back um, from the museum uh, from the art gallery in. The far west of Sydney, the working class far west of Sydney, for the Kasula Canals. And we got a train back into the city. Uh, I got it with a, uh, a producer of the ABC, Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And she, uh, this woman worked for the equivalent of BBC Radio 4. This is ABC Radio National. Anyway, she said to me, what, what took you, you know, brought you out from Britain? And as a joke, I said I was a refugee from Margaret Thatcher, which is my standard you know, bit of pattern. And anyway, being a good journalist, she uh, she rang me. She got my she got my phone number, and several months might have been over a year later, my phone rang at five thirty in the morning, and she said, "This is so and so. You met me, you know. Um, we like to." I remember you saying that you were a refugee from Margaret Thatcher. We would like you to go on live radio in a few minutes to talk about why you were a Thatcher refugee. And uh, 
I said, sure, <laughs> sure. And um, for a day, I was the expat Brit who explained the deep, deep antagonism of the immigrant towards Margaret Thatcher. I was on the TV news and everything. It was, uh, it was a whole day. It all disappeared the next day. And I never, I've never had an inquiry since. You've but never had it so good. Huh? You've never had it so good. Oh, no, it was great. And I, I sat in my ca cafe, my local cafe, just outside my building. And, and uh, they allowed us to film them. It's fantastic. Oh. Like a local celebrity for a day. Um, and, I, and I tried to explain how, how much, um, you know, I, I mean, uh, I loathed Thatcher, um, and I, I, I tried to kind of not be too, I don't know, too personal about it, too, yes, too, too angry and subjective. But, um, but I do recall because my my parents were um, angels in marble, as they were known. They were working class Tories, right? And I remember I was the only, for a period, the only non-Tory in, in in the family. A couple of people um, might have flirted with the, Demo you know, the social democrats or whatever, but they were basically Tories. And and I said to my parents, um, I, you know, you you voted for Thatcher. When you got a dose of Thatcherism, you hated it. And it reminds me a bit of what you know said about populism today, that people love populists. They love authoritarian leaders until they get some of it and then they don't like it anymore. Um, so yeah, so I, th th there was there was certainly both push and pull in terms of my move um, to Australia. It was exciting. I was young. I was 26 when I moved um, to Australia. It was an exciting time for me and it seemed very glamorous. Um, but there was certain there was pull, but there was certainly push, and the biggest push was Thatcherite Britain. You're well qualified then, albeit from some decades ago, to talk about the place of Australia in the British imaginary, if I can use extremely impressionistic terms, which it seems to me has not shifted at all from when I moved to Australia, all my time spent there, which is a place of idiots leading a life of paradise. Yeah, I, I, um, the, the strong element, um, I think, of that still still exists. I think it might have changed a bit, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll explain why. But um, uh, one of my um, my recent uh, most exciting media uh, performances was on. Uh, BBC Real, which is the videos that the BBC makes, these short videos. And it was during the, the pandemic and I was dying of boredom. And I got a call and someone said, we're looking for somebody uh, in a kind of broad leisure cultural studies area who will explain why Australians like to go barefoot. And I said, sure. Thank God sure. for public service broadcasting. It, it did. It's on BBC Real. Uh, I did it in 2021. And then um, only two, two weeks ago, maybe just over a week ago, um, I got a call from CNN in Hong Kong, and they picked up on the story from three years earlier, and they wanted to run it. This is the, obviously an American view. Um, but the, that, you know, that strikes me, this idea of that Australia is a place where people go around shoeless. I was thinking of, you know, more of shoeless Joe Jackson. <laughs> say, it ain't, say it ain't so, Joe. That was more my, my band. But, uh, yeah, I think there is that sense still uh, amongst many Brits that Australia is a kind of playground. Um and the people who live there are, um, they might be good at sport, they might be excellent physical specimens, but a bit thick, oh. a bit lacking 
in, uh, in, 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 in mental acuity. And there, I think there is an element of that, but I would also say, and this me back to the other thing, and we'll, you can talk some popular culture here. You know, there was a time, uh, one of my favorite stats, when more people in Britain watched every night when it was on uh, the soap Neighbours, the Australian soap uh, TV programme Neighbours. More people in Britain watched that programme every night than lived in Australia at the time. One of my favourite little bits of trivia. And uh, I do remember, I got, on, I got on a bus at the University of Bath and I was chatting to the bus driver and he uh, he said, uh, you know, where, are you, where are you from? The Scott chatting and said, live in Australia. And he says, is it like neighbours? He said, and he said, oh, I'd love, I'd love to live there. That sounds right. Okay, for me. So I think there were people, uh, maybe, maybe not the elite so much, you know, sort of working class people. And I had and have encountered this in, you know, in shops and you know, in service, service relationships of, a, of an everyday kind. Uh, where people actually don't aren't, aren't bothered about you know the the intellectual status of Australia, but it's like the idea of living there because of the weather and the space. And Prof, I've got a couple more questions, if I may, and then I'd like to throw to you to add or subtract anything you wish to what we've discussed from what we've discussed. And first of all, it's to ask you about your research into the nexus of sport and media and the changes that you've perceived. You've been publishing about this for four decades in both scholarly and popular outlets. What are some of the tendencies that you've observed and the changes that seem to be underway? Big, um, big changes and... Uh, I mean, well, mo most obviously, and I mean, rather predictably, the decline of print journalism, print sports journalism, and uh, uh, and the you know the sports desk itself. And you, you and I, I mean, we've, we've ourselves worked, worked together on 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 such issues around sport and journalism, or sports journalism, and the idea. Uh, that, you know, the sports desk, you know, which was this kind of mini empire within the newspaper and its own editor and kind of more or less ran itself. And it was full of uh, men, mostly white. Uh, let's talk about Britain and Australia here, the two countries I know best. And they... Many of them were wannabe sports people. They kind of loved sports people. They wanted to be them. They wanted to make love with them. <laughs> um, and the one thing they absolutely didn't want to do was to talk about any kind of politics. As they conceived politics. So... You know, if you ever want to hear someone say to you, you know, sport and politics don't mix, you know, go to, I interviewed lots of them for my own research. Uh, you know, talk to, talk to many, many of those journalists. You know, what, well, um, someone once said the least cuddly of their profession, uh, prone um, to grow sour with age and drink, which I thought was, I think was one of the little <laughs> epigrams I put in one of my, one of my books. Uh, so there's been a big change, I think, there in, uh, you know, in, in the labour process, really, of making mediated sports texts. Uh, I mean, nobody these days, uh, you know, ha has a, a, sing a single beat. I'll, 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 I'll park the development of the athletic, which is, you know, for the moment, which is, uh, which is almost an attempt in the digital world to return to the old world of sports journalism. Um, but 
uh, every sports journalist I talk to, they've got, you know, they, they've got to manage multiple media. You know, they're doing podcasts, they're doing radio, they're throwing to radio, they're, they're shooting, they're shooting for themselves. Sometimes they're taking the photos. They're kind of hyperactive. And like, I think it used to be a really good lurk to be a sports journalist. And I think it's it's much it's much harder now. And they have bit by bit diversified. And they and and also uh, diversified in terms of gender and and uh, race and ethnicity, uh, uh, and in other ways, and also sexuality, but um, not so much, I think, yet in class terms. Uh, but they um, they have been forced and dragged, kicking and screaming, to talk about um, about politics, not not just. The kind of politics as they would conceive it, which is parliament, you know, parliament and governments getting, getting involved. But you know, all that that whole area which some of them feel profoundly uncomfortable with it, you know, which we now comes under the rubric of sports washing, that poor example. Um, so now I can't talk, stop sports journalists talking about politics with me. I used to have to drive politics into our discourse. Now um, they, they 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 feel compelled to talk about politics. So that's that's one one big change for me. Also, and this is not just the case with sports journalists, I think, but in other of the sort of cultural beats like film, theatre, that kind of thing, food, maybe. Uh, is uh, they've been displaced somewhat. The, obviously, the rise of social media, however you want to define it, you know, means that they their their connection to the sports person. One of the reasons they never they never wanted to say anything you know, too difficult because they didn't want to uh, make it difficult with their sources to be cut off. That would be death. For, you know, occupational death for many of them to be cut off from getting some, you know, anodyne, you know, rent a quote. But they needed that. And increasingly, uh, I think, with, with, un, under the claim uh, that we cut out the middle person, uh, you know, sports people and sports organisations go, go straight out and do it for themselves. And I'll just give you one example. The largest single media operation, I'm sure you know this, in Australia, is run by the Australian Football League. It's the, it's, it, it, it far outweighs public service media, like the ABC or SBS, all commercial media, uh, you know, uh, broadcast media, TV, and so on. It is essentially an in-house media operation. And that, that is another very big change that I've noticed. And my last question, Prof, is to ask you how you find out the things you find out. You've told us about casual ethnography and about formal interviews. When you're thinking about what you want to write your next book on, and there are many, or your next article, and there are even more, how do you go about thinking about the topic how do you, oh, sorry, how do you choose the topic? How do you think about the topic? How do you investigate the topic? Yeah. Yeah, um, that's that's a good question because I, um, I've i also, in my in my career, uh, moved uh, across or, you know, simultaneously in some cases, uh, qualitative and quantitative methods. Now, I am the first person to say I'm no great quant. Uh, I, I think I'm better with text, and uh, I defer to, to, um, to people who, who, who can work with numbers uh, really well. And so I've actually, in my research, my work on, on, uh, on popular journalism, uh, actually had... Um, you know, blaring of trumpets, content analysis, mm. actual quantitative content analysis. Mm. Uh, and in um, 
the biggest single project I've ever been involved in was Australian Cultural Fields, led by Professor, Emeritus Professor Tony Bennett, also recently on your podcast. Um, the Australian Cultural Fields project, big Austra Australian Research Council funded project, where we combined uh, a, a major survey, uh, statistic, you know, statistically representative survey of Australian, Australian adult population with boost samples, for example, for Indigenous Australians, Chinese Australians, Indian Australians, and so on. We also um, I've been working on a rep lately. We did cultural sector interviews, so we went to media professionals uh, or in, in, in some fields, so not just media. Our fields were media, um, art, literature, heritage, uh, uh, music. Uh, so the range of, of fields. So it's a Bourdieu's study. And we also did household interviews. So we went into people's homes and we interviewed them as follow-ups to our survey. And we looked at their, uh, you know, their homes, what what paintings they had, uh, what what videos they were watching, that kind of thing. Yes. So I, I, I like to think of myself as a, a mixed method Person, if that doesn't sound too pretentious. Oh, thank you very much, David. And finally, I'd like to throw things over to you to add anything. Maybe you want to mention particular books you've written, or maybe you want to reflect further on retirement, being an old geezer, etc. Yeah, uh, yes, being an old geezer. I, I do, you know, I, I, I do identify as an. Uh, an old geezer, sometimes as a curmudgeon, quite like you, know, you want to get to take on a curmudgeonly role. I really, um, I really do enjoy uh, mentoring, quite, you know, bringing people through. I and I, I, it's not just something I'm giving them, but it's something I, I get back. Um, I guess uh, the thing I'd like want to finish off on, just because I know this brings us back together uh, to some of our preoccupations. I recently received a very nice approach from someone from American University Press. And they said, you know, write back pretty much anything you want to. And and I and uh, because we, we want we want to do it on you know, everyone's going to write a chapter on something that they're interested in. It's got you know it could be a um, it could be a song, or it could be a sports team, it could be a painting, it could be anything you want. And of course, this was this was terrible temptation for me. So I said I want to do it on Plymouth Argyle. Ah, <laughs> wonderful. So I have written I have written the chapter on on Plymouth Argyle, um, a team. Better known, as you said, I think you intimated at the start, probably be better known for its failures than its successes. Been around since 1886. It's never won the FA Cup. It's never been in the top league, be that Division One or the English Premier League. It's never won the League Cup. Um, it's the biggest city in Britain, never to have won anything. Of <laughs> I mean, it's just fantastic. And um, and I I I wanted to write about about it because I mean you've been in uh, in the United States you recall that um that that English football clubs became perversely trendy amongst American college students and and so on and this whole idea that this was somehow real you know that working class English football was real not like not like the rest. The rest of it, and of course now they're all buying into um, into teams like Wrexham, you know, with uh, uh, Hollywood buying into Wrexham, um, you know, or sport, big sport like Tom Brady buying into Birmingham and so on. Like it, and even Plymouth Argyle has National Hockey League players who bought into the team, and someone who's an exec on the uh, on the NBA. 
So um, I love this site. So it gave me this great opportunity to talk about, you know, the uh, the people's people's fantasy about what it what working class life, masculine this life, yeah. you know, was like, uh, and um, and also a a concern I have, one that's been, that's very difficult to break in to with the fans. I'm a member of Pasotti, Timothy Argyle supporters on the internet, uh, a chat, a fan chat group. And uh, the nickname for Plymouth Argyle, as you might know, is the Pilgrims, because the Mayflower ship left Plymouth and it founded the colony, Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts. And um, try to raise that issue of what, what was the impact on Native Americans of the pilgrims, and you know, and your your everyday sports fan doesn't want to hear this stuff. I know there's been these big debates in America about the Washington Redskins and so on, but just get even starting a debate about whether you know your badge, your your logo being the Mayflower and your team being the Pilgrims, uh, if you deny uh, it's it's colonialist. History, uh, just trying to get that message out there is uh, amongst fans and the club is, is really quite hard. Um, and that I think takes us back to the politics of popular culture where it all began for me, which was when I was into punk music and post punk music and I wanted to talk about the political economy of the major cor music corporations and the politics of uh, anti-factorism and, and all that. So it, uh, it's never very far, political's never very far, uh, and the economic never very far from my, my kind of cultural framework, analytical uh, approach. Wow, I can't wait to read that essay. Well, <laughs> Prof Rowe, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and thoughts. It's always great to learn from you, and today was special. Thanks. Thank you. It was uh, it was great fun uh, as ever.